Back when we were kids, boys and girls used to pass notes to each other that said things like, I like you, do you like me? Check one of the boxes. And there was yes, no, and sometimes maybe. It was so exciting to deliver that note or to receive that kind of a note. I still remember that feeling of unfolding the lined origami creation and, and discovering this person likes me. Yes, this is the most incredible moment of my life. You'll have to excuse me if I strut for the rest of the day. Ha <laughs> ha. Well, I need to say that's not what's happening here in Ruth chapter three. Aww. It is very tempting for us to look at this story through our own cultural lenses and to see this as the romantic or even spicy part of the story where Boaz and Ruth, who've been flirting with each other all throughout the harvest season where they finally come together. I mean, this is, this is the titillating love scene that we knew was coming. I mean, he's this lonely farmer and she'll be his sweetheart. And she's this desperate woman and he'll come in and be her knight in shining overalls. It's just like a movie. They're finally confessing their love for one another and it's gonna be Boaz and Ruth together forever. But I really think we need to de-romanticize this story a bit and try to understand it from the perspective of their culture. And this may be a bummer for some of you because you really like the way that this love story plays out like a fairy tale that has a happily ever after ending. But don't worry. I think that what we'll see when we zoom in on this story to understand what's going on We'll see that it's not just a love scene, but it's a scene of genuine love. What happens in Ruth chapter three is far more redemptive and sacrificial than you might realize. And it's actually a really beautiful picture of the gospel. So we need to start by undoing some things we may have in our minds. First, we need to scrub the image of Boaz being Bethlehem's most eligible bachelor, that wealthy, handsome business owner who's, you know, just been too busy to get married. Maybe he's been too involved in his charitable organizations. He's such a good dude. In actuality, Boaz is much older than Ruth, and it's likely in this culture that he already has one or more wives. The ethical commentary about polygamy that we might be looking for in the Old Testament is absent. It was something that was common and it was practical. In their culture, it wasn't good or bad, it just was. And this means that Boaz might have already had sons who would inherit his land and carry on his family name. I know that realization kills the romance a little bit. So if you're waiting for Boaz to tell Ruth, you complete me, you might be waiting a while. Aww. We also need to delete some images we have in our minds of Ruth as the fairest maiden of them all. Remember, in their culture, she was not that desirable. She was a foreigner from Moab, Ugh, Moab. She was a widow with no sons. And the word on the street is, she can't even have babies at all. And she was also attached to this mother-in-law. It was like a package deal. And she also had a crooked nose. And she probably had a unibrow. All right, well, I made those last two things up. But the point is, even though she may have had a good reputation, Ruth was undesirable as a wife. Aww. Bummer. I know I'm bumming you guys out, huh? I'm going to dig myself a little deeper into this hole just for a minute by comparing the story of Ruth to one of my favorite movies, Napoleon Dynamite. Now, I don't know if, if you're familiar with this movie or not, but it's a very polarizing movie. Most people either love it or they hate it. Darren told me one time that he's learned not to trust my taste in movies because I've mentioned so many bad movies in my sermons. And fair warning, this might be one of those movie recommendations. Napoleon Dynamite contains a bunch of unpopular and unglamorous characters. To put it bluntly, Napoleon, Pedro, Kip, and Deb, 
Well, they're all just kind of a bunch of weirdos. But the story is endearing because of their love that they show to one another. The climactic moment when Napoleon performs a ridiculous dance in front of his whole school is epic. And we don't love Napoleon and Pedro because they're cool or good looking or popular because they're not. We love them because of the sacrificial love that they show for each other. And the same is true about the story of Ruth. As we take a closer look at Ruth chapter 3, we see that all three characters in the story are doing something sacrificial for the sake of another. Let's take a look at each of these sacrifices. First, Naomi. Naomi's goal in chapter 3 is stated at the very start. I must provide a home for you where you will be well provided for, she tells Ruth. In Naomi's culture, marriage arrangements were typically brokered by the men. But Naomi decides she's going to speed up the process a little bit, cut out the middlemen, so she sends Ruth to have a private meeting with Boaz to hurry this thing along. She tells Ruth to bathe and get all dressed up, signaling that Ruth's time of mourning for her dead husband was over, and they were both expecting Boaz to respond favorably. Now, it may seem like Naomi is looking out for herself and her own future here. But if that were the case, then wouldn't Naomi have sent Ruth to Elimelech's closest relative to try to marry him? Remember that primary guardian redeemer that we're going to meet later on in chapter 4? According to Israel's customs, if a husband died, then his brother or the closest relative called the guardian redeemer, or sometimes the kinsman redeemer, that person could step in and care for the family. Now, if that happened, Naomi would have been all set. But instead of sending Ruth to that guy, she sends him to Boaz. She's thinking only of Ruth's well-being, possibly at the expense of her own future and security. It's very likely that Naomi expected the marriage to be consummated that night and for Ruth to come home as Boaz's new wife. It was a simple plan. Just get him to marry you. You need this. Don't worry about all that guardian redeemer stuff. She doesn't even mention it. She says that he's a family member but not the guardian redeemer. Ruth is the one who brings it up. And in doing so, Ruth sacrifices her position in order to make sure that Naomi is cared for. You see, Ruth sacrifices her chance for a quick, easy marriage to Boaz by mentioning that he is a guardian redeemer in their family. And that's a mood killer if there ever was one. She's looking all nice and he's thinking, ooh, you smell good. And she says, let's do some legal talk. We gotta get down to business. Last week we saw that Ruth was bold and she already made a big ask when she requested to glean behind the bundlers. Asking for Boaz to step in as kinsman redeemer is an even bigger ask. She's asking for land and for inheritance and the chance to bear Boaz a son even though she's barren for 10 years. Think about all that Ruth is risking here. Aside from the obvious risk of making herself vulnerable to a man in the middle of the night, she risks rejection. She risks embarrassment, and she risks the painful process of trying to bear a son once again if he agrees to her proposal. And Boaz understands all of this. This isn't just a tasty rendezvous after a successful harvest season. When Ruth says to him, spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family, she is clearly asking for marriage and security and a future, and she has very little to offer him in return. And Boaz's response shows that he is willing to sacrifice in order to help both Ruth and Naomi. He doesn't really need Ruth, remember? She's a liability to him. But he sees her ongoing kindness toward Naomi and her kindness toward him, and he's inspired. He's willing to try to make this request happen, even though it's going to cost him something. 
So what we see in this story is selfless mutual submission. Each of them being willing to sacrifice in some way for the good of someone else. And when that kind of thing happens, everybody wins. You know, romantic love is often about getting. Genuine love is about giving and about sacrificing. And the key to this kind of love is a word that Boaz actually uses in this chapter to describe Ruth's actions. And that's the word chesed. Everybody put on your mask because there's some spit involved in saying this and say chesed. Boaz tells her, your kindness, your chesed, is greater than that which you showed earlier. In the barley field, he's heard about Ruth's chesed toward Naomi. And now he says her bold request of marriage is an even greater act of chesed. Chesed is kind of a difficult concept to translate into English. Uh, it's, it's a hard concept to just boil down to one word. Here it's translated kindness. In other places, it's translated loving kindness. It's a selfless act that's demonstrated through actions. One definition I read says that chesed is when someone cares and has freely made it their business to look out for you. Chesed is used over a hundred times in the Psalms to describe how God loves. And it also happens to be one of the words that God uses when he reveals himself to Moses. Moses meets God. He's like, who are you? And God says, here's what I'm about. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in chesed and faithfulness and maintaining chesed to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. This kind of love is the love of God. This kind of love is the love that we were made for. We might want the story of Ruth to be about romance and passion and smooching, but it's really about chesed. It's about sacrifice. It's about devotion. It's about a love that chooses others. The kind of notes that we used to pass when we were kids said things like, I like you or I love you. But when we get older, we realize that love isn't just something that you say. It's something that's shown by our actions and our choices and our sacrifices. If you watch Napoleon Dynamite, you might notice that nobody ever says, I love you in the whole movie. But love is there. And nobody ever says the words, I love you in the story of Ruth. But that love is there. It's demonstrated. It reflects the love of God for his people and among his people and that he enacts through his people. And Chesed returns to Bethlehem several generations after Ruth and Boaz. The God of Israel leaves his glorious throne in heaven and becomes a helpless baby. And he will embody Chesed in human form for us to watch and to learn from. And that climactic moment when he lays down his life on the cross it's epic. It's Jesus, God in human form, who teaches us what real love looks like. And when we understand how much God chooses to love us, it, it floors us. It makes us realize that a love that gets and gets and takes and takes, just it can't sustain us. That's not the love that we were designed for. But instead, Jesus inspires us to go out and show God's love to others as much as we possibly can. And I think the church is like a training gym for developing your chesed muscles. It's where we're reminded of the great love that God has shown to us in Jesus. And then we practice showing love to the people in our lives. I just want to thank the church personally for all the calls and the flowers and meals and prayers that we received from you the last couple weeks after Lisa's miscarriage. We really appreciate the way that you have shown God's love through your actions to us. 
I also want to share with you an act of love that Tri-Valley was able to have a small part in last week. A group of folks use our church parking lot as a distribution center to give out the 300 hot meals that they had prepared for anybody who was in need. This group is connected with the folks who keep the blessing box stocked uh, here on our property. It's cool to see some creative ways that people are reaching out and showing love to the poor in our community. There's another opportunity that you have this week to show chesed to people who are in need. John Johnson and his family are, are making Thanksgiving turkeys for some of our shut-ins in the church or people who aren't able to be with their families this holiday. And if you want to make a side dish, you can contribute in that way. You can get in touch with John and find out how you can partner with him to show God's love to people who are in need. But I want you to challenge yourself in one way or another to ask, how can I show chesed this week? What does that look like? This message this week, I'm, I, I'm hoping it'll do three things for you. One, I just wanted us to take a moment to sit in awe of the amazing love that comes from God, that, that defines God's character. I just want you to understand that love, first of all. Second of all, I want you to know that that love that God has is directed at you and that he demonstrates this most in the sacrifice of Jesus. God is for us. God loves us. That hesed is not just floating around out there somewhere, but it is for you. And the third thing I hope it does, once you realize those first two things, is be inspired to go out and show chesed love to somebody else, to just be motivated to keep that love going, because I think that's what we were designed for. Let me close us out in prayer and then transition us into a time of communion. Lord God, your love is so great for us. You are love. You are our author and our creator, and anything good comes from you. The love that we experience, the love that we know, the love that we have heard about, and the love that we want to show is from you, and we praise you for that this morning. And we say thank you for knowing us. Thank you for directing that love at us. May we be instruments of your peace and uh, those who could go and take your love to people who don't know about it, who need to hear about how loved they are, how valuable they are in your sight. Let us treat people that way. Let us be inspired to show love with our actions. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I want to invite you to participate in a time of communion. If you have some bread and if you have something to drink, uh, I want you to take those now. Eat the bread and be reminded that it represents the body that Jesus sacrificed on the cross. He gave himself physically to die so that we could be forgiven for our sins, so that we could be rescued and saved. And then I want you to drink uh, the juice or the wine or whatever it is you have there. And remember that this represents Jesus' blood that was shed, uh, these physical actions of him laying down his life. But also, we don't take these things in a sad way. We do them in a celebratory way because we know that God was raised from the dead on the third day. He didn't stay on the cross. He didn't stay in the tomb. By God's power, he was raised and he overcome. And the same thing can happen to us when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord. And we say, yes, we believe that these things are true. We hold on to these things. We celebrate these things. So I want you to do that now. I want you to take the bread, drink the juice, and we're going to listen. You're invited to sing as well this song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, as we remember Christ and celebrate the great love that was shown through him.
to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns his face away, as wounds which mar the Oh,